Anton Gunn, former senior advisor for President Barack Obama and the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership, is on my show, Max and TV. He has a master's degree in social work from USC and was a resident fellow at Harvard. He is the best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, BBC, NPR, and on Good Morning America. As an international speaker and consultant, he has worked with some of the largest companies you can imagine. Microsoft, KPMG, Verizon Wireless, Aetna, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of California, American College of Surgeons, FINRA, and the Boeing Company, to name a few. From playing SEC football and being the first African-American in history elected to the South Carolina legislature from his district early in his career, to now working as a C-level executive for an academic health system and serving on multiple boards, he has spent his life helping people build diverse, high-performing teams and world-class leadership culture. We'll be discussing a number of key points, such as socially conscious leadership and why every leader needs to be aware of it and how to actually implement it into their own business. And as a senior advisor to President Barack Obama, I want to hear about his experience. He also had a huge play on the Obamacare Act, which we will be discussing as well. We will also be discussing funny moments in the Obama administration, such as when he was on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, he mentioned that he pays for his own orange juice. I just could not imagine the President of the United States buying his own orange juice. We will be getting to the bottom of this inquiry, as well as did he drink Florida's orange juice, Tropicana orange juice, with pulp or without pulp? These are some of the fundamental questions we will be discussing, as well as his experience playing for South Carolina in the SEC division, what leadership qualities we can learn from there. And last but not least, as my show really is not political one way or another, when you have a guy on here, Anton Gunn, you're going to ask him what's really going on in Afghanistan. All that and more coming up right here on Max and TV. So stick around. And if you like the show, we really appreciate you clicking the like button, maybe sending a comment, sharing it with a friend, and feel free to subscribe on our website, www.therealmaxintv.com, and check us out on Instagram, at TV. All right, and welcome back, everyone, to another fantastic edition of Max and TV. I have a real special guest, really special guest, Mr. Anton Gunn, former senior advisor to President Obama. Anton, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me very much. I'm so excited about being here with you. I'm more excited. Um, so you are the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. You were the senior advisor to President Obama. And so a couple other things, I'm going to have a little bit of an overview of what we're going to be discussing. So I want to talk about your experiences in the Obama administration. I want to talk about you know how to change things that are essentially unchangeable. Uh, a couple of funny moments maybe we could discuss in the Obama administration. Um, what your experience was like playing in the SEC. Uh, you played for University of South Carolina, um, the hardest conference ever. Um, so the fact that you played in it, I'm sure you had a lot of leadership qualities and things that you've learned from there that you can share. And your take on what's going on in Afghanistan. So, um, so why don't we start off first. You're the leading authority on socially conscious leadership. So number one. Um, what does that entail and what exactly do you teach to essentially executives? 
Yeah, that's a great, great place to start. And before I get you oriented around socially conscious leadership, I have to help you to understand the number one problem that everyone experiences in their workplace. And that number one problem is injustice. Now, when I say injustice, I want you to think about the word unfairness. We all know what it feels like to be treated unfair. So whether you got passed over for a promotion or whether the team that didn't work as hard as you did got a bigger bonus than you did, or whether you get disrespected, talked down to, or discriminated against at work, everyone knows what it feels like to be treated unfair. But here's a newsflash for you and everybody paying attention. This happens every day to all of us, wherever we may live, work, and play. It's going to happen. But the key is when it happens in the workplace, do you know what it's costing you? And I can tell you in the American business environment, it costs them about $233 billion a year that people leave their jobs because of toxic workplace culture. And so my goal as a leader and as a trainer, and facilitator, and a consultant, as I help leaders in organizations understand how this injustice is costing them, but most importantly, teach them the skill set that they need to have to mitigate that. And that is socially conscious leadership. That's being socially aware that something is wrong and going wrong on your teams and with the people that you lead. But more importantly, that you have the leadership ability to take action and do what I call making it right. You, your job is to make things right. It's not that you created every problem. It's not that the problems didn't precede you. They may have. But every day you show up as a leader, you have the opportunity to do something to make it right. And it takes a conscious effort to be aware of those challenges, but more importantly, a conscious action effort to do something about it. Right. And I'm sure every single person in the world has gone through it at least once. Unfortunately, I've gone through it many times, um, practically every manager I've ever worked with, with um, that you got passed up for a promotion and got, I like to say, just even these people who are quote unquote, very smart, intelligent people are not, but they're so stupid and they're so unaware as to what's going on. It's mind boggling. I like, you know, I like to keep it a clean show, but their heads are so far up their ass. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. um, so the people that you help, you've worked with some major, major organizations, Microsoft, um, for example. And so places like that, they're obviously always looking to grow. That's why their stock is over $300. Um, so, but the people that probably really need your help are the ones that they're the most stubborn. They're like, we don't need any change. How do you address that? Yeah. So the, the main thing is, you know, I'm a honest and straight up kind of guy. I mean, I kind of model myself off of Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction. He's called the wolf. The wolf has his own life and he enjoys his life. Right. And he's doing what he's doing to have a great time, but people call him when they got problems. And he's happy to come and help you when you have a problem. And I'm happy to come and help you when you have a problem. But if you think you got more answers than I do, then I'm happy to leave you alone and go back to my life because you have to be open and willing to address change in order for change to happen. You have to believe that there's something that you can learn and there's something that you can grow. And I don't want to work with people who believe that they got all the answers and they don't want to grow because that's a person who's going to be out on the street in short order because they think they have all the answers. No one likes to be around the smartest guy in the room. And I call it some to some degree, SICK leadership as an acronym, S-I-C-K. It stands for selfish, 
selfish, insecure, controlling, know-it-all leaders. Nobody wants to work for that person. And I don't want to work with them. So my goal is to find people who want to build a world-class workplace culture by building diverse, high-performing teams and leaders that everybody will admire. And the key word is a leader that is admired. So my question for you, if you manage a team, if you lead a group of people, do you want to be a leader that people look up to, feel inspired by, want to run through walls for and work very hard for? Or do you want to be that leader that people are always looking at you sideways and are trying to find a way to get the heck out of your building, the heck out of your department and go work with somebody else? And the problem is we have too many people who in the latter are not enough in the former. But there's enough in the former that I get the opportunity to do this work every day with some very big companies, a lot of healthcare organizations who want to do the right thing by their team. And so for me is that I want to work with people who want to make it better for every person that they lead. They're sick of losing employees to turnover. I mean, you think about it, there's like 78% of people will leave their job to go work with someone else because of the culture. If you're in the tech sector, I mean, people walk away every day. And many times if they don't walk away, the only thing that's keeping them there is not you and not your leadership, but it's those stock options that they're not leaving until their shares vest. I talked to a guy at a crypto company here recently who says he hates his boss. He doesn't feel valued. He doesn't feel respected. They don't give him the opportunities that he deserves. And I said, well, why don't you leave? He says, I'm not leaving until all of my shares vest. And so I got two more years, but as soon as they vest, I'm out the door. And so what's going to happen in those two lead, two years? He's going to be a minimalist. He's going to show up at 859, do the bare minimum to say he can keep his job. And then at 459, he's walking out the door and he'll never think twice about his work until he gets back there the next morning. Nobody deserves to have an environment like that at work. And as a leader, you don't want those kind of people on your team. So you got to become the kind of manager that is admired by every person that you lead. 100%. I know one very large company that I will not name, Amazon, that does that. Um, you know, I, I like to say it's like dangling a fruit in front of someone who's starving. That's exactly, I saw in my own eyes. Um, I won't get too much into that. Not, yeah. But by the way, I love that acronym, SICK. Yeah. SICK leadership. That's fantastic. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Um, so the whole point about Amazon, we could actually probably do a whole separate show. Oh, we for sure can. <laughs> I, I work for them, so I saw it. I saw exactly what goes on there. Yeah. Um, fine, we'll do that for episode number two. Yes. Uh, we can talk all about Amazon. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you speak to a lot of healthcare companies, and so I'm sure that they want to speak to you because you are Mr. Healthcare. I'm sure you probably don't like to hear that because you got called out a lot. Did, it, did President Obama call you that? Also or no? Yeah, so he, he called me that in, in a meeting or two. It was his team who came up with the nickname for me, his communications team. And the reason why I, I don't have a healthcare background, I'm not like a doctor or a nurse or uh, any clinical thing. I have a master's degree in social work. But how I got the nickname was because I could articulate different aspects of healthcare to any group. So whether you are a group of neurosurgeons, a group of stockbrokers, or a group of plumbers, I could talk healthcare in a language that you would understand. So it didn't matter who you put me in front of, I can make them connect the dots on what healthcare reform actually meant for them and why the Affordable Care Act would benefit them. And that's how I got the nickname Mr. Healthcare. Right, and from my understanding, you played a huge part in the Affordable Care Act. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I did. So one of the things I I will tell you that I was a, 
a two-time presidential appointee. I served for 41 months in the Obama administration. And uh, I started working with Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. That was my principal boss, if you will, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But by the time I got to the end of my tenure, I was being called over to the White House two or three days a week, sometimes four days a week, and always in a meeting talking about the strategy to help the American public sign up for health insurance coverage. And we called it open enrollment, which is a period when anybody who doesn't have health coverage through their job can get health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Well, we worked on the very first open enrollment period. I helped to design the outreach strategy and, and some of the people that we met with, the people who we got to do commercial and ads for us. I remember meeting with a, a group of Hollywood people. And then it was about a year later that we had Barack Obama doing Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. So it was these kinds of opportunities that kind of uh, came out of my work of really trying to engage the creative community the business community, the education community, and the medical community around how we talk about healthcare reform in a way that allows people want to sign up for Obamacare and sign up for coverage. Right. So being a part of something like this is huge. To be the senior advisor of President Barack Obama is very, is, I mean, I'm at a loss of words. How did you get it? How did you, how did you end up there? Yeah, so uh, that's a very, very long and, and engaged story. Matter of fact, it's like six stories. So I'll give you the first one. I'll tell everybody, if you want to see or read about it, if you will, if you want to read about it, you can Google Time Magazine, Anton Gunn, and Barack Obama. So if you put those three words in a Google search, a Time story will come up about how I got involved. But the short story is I phone banked him. I literally called his office 12 or 13 times begging his team to let me get involved in his campaign. And a big part of my begging his team was convincing them that if he wanted to be successful and run for president, he needed a guy like me on his team, somebody who was loyal, somebody who was sharp, but more importantly, who was so passionate about making things right. And I wanted to help him to make things right for healthcare and a lot of other issues. And he, he ends up winning the primary and going on to become president. And about 18 later, his team says, Anton, we see you got a lot of background in healthcare. Uh, we're looking for somebody who could help us do outreach on healthcare issues at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And I said, I'm your guy. And next thing I know, I was being appointed by the president, announced in a press release. And then the next day, I was off to Orlando, Florida with Secretary Sebelius speaking at an event with seniors, talking to them about the benefits of Medicare. And that, that began the journey. And for the next 41 months, I traveled, you know, a whole bunch of different cities. I went to a lot of conferences, met with a lot of mayors, governors, uh, insurance commissioners, Blue Cross and Blue Shield executives, hospital CEOs, et cetera, all talking about the priorities of the Obama administration and what was important uh, to the American people. And that was finding a way to make health care affordable and accessible. Right. And so, as you mentioned, that you travel a lot. I assume you didn't walk there. Um, do you ever get the number one? Did you ever get the flying Air Force One? Never got the fly on Air Force One. That was the the one thing that I I was always frustrated by because, you know, I flew commercial and you know you you don't get no perks when you're a government employee. You just you fly in coach and you sit in the back in the middle seat. And I was the big guy stuck in the middle seat most times. But it's the president and the smaller team who always is on Air Force One. I did get a chance to see it land and take off um, several times which was a majestic sight on its own just to watch that huge airplane take off. Um, but I got a lot of friends who flew on Air Force Two, which is they flew with um, Vice President Biden. 
but I never got an opportunity to step on Air Force One. And maybe one day we can fix that and uh, I'll get that chance. Definitely. And when you do, please let me know. Uh, whatever I'm doing, I will drop everything and I will head over to the nearest airport immediately. Yeah, for sure. It's a great, great opportunity for sure. Definitely. So uh, I want to maybe ask you, you know, something because you knew you knew President Obama. You were very you were pretty close with him. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen, you know, comedians in cars getting coffee. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he took out President Obama. And by the way, President Obama likes to screw around with the Secret Service. He doesn't he tells him one thing. He goes the other way. Yeah. Um, and so Jerry Seinfeld asked him a couple of funny questions. He's like, so, you know, with underwear, is it one brand or multiple brands? And uh, President Obama mentioned that uh, he actually buys his orange juice. And so when I heard that, I have to ask you, there's no way the President of the United States pays for his own orange juice. And if he does, is it Tropicana or is it Florida's Natural? Does he yeah. have pulp or without pulp? Yeah. Got to know. All great yeah. questions. All great questions. And I will tell you that I never got a chance to spend much orange juice time with Barack Obama. Um, but, you know, he really is particular about certain things. Like he he was a trail mix guy. You know, I'm not a trail mix guy, but he, he ate a lot of trail mix. I mean, I've seen him go through bags and bags of, of trail mix with the fruits and the nuts and the berries in it. But the one thing I can tell you, I don't know a lot about the orange juice, but I do know about the apples. And Barack Obama loves apples, particularly honey crisp apples. And I didn't know what a honey crisp apple was until one day I happened to be in the Oval Office and there was this bowl on the table full of these huge honey crisp apples. And I was like, honey crisp apples, honey crisp apples. And I tried one and it was great. And so now the only kind of apple that I'll eat are honey crisp apples. They're the best for apple pies or the best for just a quick snack. And uh, he does like some honey crisp apples. I can tell you that much. And I do too. I know about Honey Chris very well. I have them all the time. Um, so uh, why, don't you, why don't we get into a, a little bit of a segment switch as to, you know, the question is, how do you change something that seems to be essentially unchangeable? Hashtag Mitch McConnell. You know, you have one side saying one thing, and no matter what you say, he'll say the opposite. I've actually been joking about that for years, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you can say something that Mitch McConnell agreed with, and if but the fact that you said it, he'll disagree with. And I think it happened one time. Um, so, so I'm a part of a board, a local board here in my local synagogue. It's nowhere near the stature of what you guys have dealt with, and it's even hard navigating through that. So, how do you deal with essentially people that don't necessarily see eye to eye with you? Yeah. So you know, you know, first thing I'll tell you is that you have to want change. And what do I mean, want change? Um, I use this phrase often. Until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain that it takes to change, nothing will happen. And the problem with folks like Mitch McConnell is that they weren't interested in change. They were interested in things staying the way that they are. If we said something was red, they would say it's blue. If we said it was green, they would say it's yellow because they just wanted to be contrarians. And we all have people like that in our organizations that we work with on any board. If somebody, if you raise the idea, they're just going to be against it because you raise the idea. So it's really almost impossible to work with people who don't want change. But some people are just resistant to change. And they're, they're, it's not that they're opposed to it, that they're comfortable where they are. And a lot of people like comfort. They don't like to be uncomfortable. And so when you're in those circumstances, your responsibility as a leader is to orient people towards change. 
And so to orient them towards change, you got to remove the barriers out of the way that keeps them from wanting change. And so let me give you the three barriers that I found that keep people from, from moving and change. Barrier number one is the unknown. Everyone is afraid of the unknown. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. No, none of us want to walk into someplace we don't have any insight around that we don't have any visibility into. We want to know what's going to happen on the other side of this. So if you want to be a great leader that actually moves people towards change, you got to minimize the fear of the unknown. How you minimize the fear of the unknown is by being transparent to answer questions because transparency of the change process will breed trust into the change process. The more transparent and honest you are, the more trust you will get from people and you will gain from people. And so minimize the fear of the unknown by first telling people what to expect. And guess what? If you don't know the answer to something, don't lie to them. Don't make it up. Don't try to fib it at all. Just tell them you don't know and you're going to work to get the answers back to them. That's how you, the first thing you got to do is to minimize the fear of people uh, against change. The second thing is you got to get them to become a believer. You got to take them from non-believer and naysayer into believer. Now, how do you do that? You show them the path that you're going to walk down. You got to show them A to Z. You just can't show them A, B, and C and think that they're going to believe in the rest of the alphabet. No, show them the path that you want them to walk down towards change. Because if they can see the finish line, then they know that their role in, in getting to that finish line is a valuable part of it. Because some people don't want change because they think you're trying to manage them out of the organization. So they're going to be resistant to anything that's going to take them away from it. But if you show them the path, then they'll get on board. That's number two. The third thing and the final thing is you got to get people unfocused on the unknowns, get them away from being concerned about the path, but get them focused in on the benefits of the future. You got to show them what the desired state will look like at the end. So if I want to tell you that we're going to change from we're going to change Coke to Pepsi, then I got to tell you what's the benefits of drinking Pepsi. What's the benefits of of, of having a, a different process. And so you got to get people focused on the future. You got to cultivate people into future thinking. And you do that by painting a vision of what this future looks like. The greatest communicators, the ones who have the biggest impact in any organization are the ones that can paint the big, big picture vision. I mean, think about the people on Shark Tank that have success. They're the ones that show the sharks what the world is going to be like when their product is a household name, when everybody has it. So if you want to get people to change, you got to show them those three things. Minimize the fear of the unknown. Show them the path from A to Z. Turn them into a believer. But then show them what the future looks like and cultivate them as future thinkers. Yeah. And I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, Coke to Pepsi. And I do have to have a sideline and do have to mention, I drink a lot of Diet Coke and a lot of Diet Pepsi. And anyone listening that has anything to do with them, don't think we haven't noticed there was a there was a taste change. I don't know if you've noticed it. There was a big taste change, and I don't know what the hell it is. Is it the pipes? What? It, so you've noticed it also? Yeah, there's a probably, big. I, I don't drink a lot of soft drinks, but you know they taste a lot different today than they ever have before. And I don't, oh my I don't know what all of those things are, but hopefully they're trying to make them more healthy and less filled with sugar, so we can all stay healthy and live great lives. Definitely. Just uh, I think they're veering off a little bit towards the taste. They please do not veer off towards the taste. I will go to your competitor. Please fix it immediately. <laughs> um, so so you have experience playing in the SEC. 
for those who aren't aware, that is the toughest conference to play in college football. You play for the University University of South Carolina. Um, do you feel you gained a lot of leadership quality skills uh, playing for them? Because of, I don't think it is a saying, but I'm going to make it a saying. Anybody who can play in the SEC can not only play anywhere, can do anything. Huh. Um, and you played on the front lines as an offensive lineman. Maybe tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so I will tell you that I learned a lot of lessons in football, an incredible amount of uh, lessons about leadership and, and what it means to be a great teammate. So playing the offensive line, I played two positions. I played center and I played guard. And if you don't know anything about the offensive line, that's the group of big guys up front. We're the five guys at the front of the line that get hit every play. It's like a collision every single play. So it's physically hard. It's physically taxing. And the, what's important about it is that your role is an unsung role. Like you don't hear offensive linemen names get called out for scoring touchdowns or catching passes or, or making incredible plays because we're the unknown guys who do our part to make sure our teammates get the shine. And I think that's the cornerstone of any leader. It's not about you being on the pedestal and on the totem pole at the top of the totem pole. It's about what you can do to help your teammates shine. And that's what great leaders do. And so when you got five offensive linemen, we got to work together in unison. You got to learn how to operate in a team. I got to know what my the left side is doing, and they got to know what the right side is doing. And the center has to get all of us moving on the same sheet of music. But the goal is, is so the running backs, the quarterbacks, the tight ends, and the wide receivers can have the most success possible and take all of those accolades. And I learned all of that in the SEC. And there's nothing uh, bad I can say about playing on the offensive line. It's the hardest job, second hardest job that I've ever had next to working to President Obama. It's also the re most rewarding is because you get to see the benefits and when you do a good job and your teams get to celebrate. And so that's why the quarterback always takes the offensive line out for a steak dinner and buys them those gold watches and cars and everything else because he knows that he would be dead meat every play if those guys didn't do their job. And that's the, that's the environment that I learned playing in the Southeastern Conference. That's right. And did your number one, who was your quarterback? And did he take you off for that steak dinner? Yeah. So my quarterback was a guy named Steve Tannehill. And he was an incredible guy. He was very flamboyant as a quarterback, had a long ponytail out of the back of his helmet. He was very brash as a quarterback, but he took care of us. Matter of fact, I think the best thing he did was not even a steak dinner is that he took me uh, to, to a paintball contest with him. So we literally oh. ha had a group of guys get together and uh, do paintball one Sunday and uh, he says, I'm going to make sure you're on my team. And so my quarterback was a great guy. Uh, he's a great business owner now, great high school coach as well. He won a lot of state championships as a high school offensive uh, coach, offensive guru. Um, he's doing good now, owning a small business in Columbia, South Carolina, where we both live. Very nice. No relation to Ryan Tannehill, is it? Not at all. No, this is, but I'll tell you what, my Tannehill is one of the great Western Pennsylvania quarterbacks. So if you think about Dan Marino, uh, out of Western Pennsylvania. Steve Tannehill's from Altoona, Pennsylvania. They breed great quarterbacks out of there. And uh, Steve is one of the greats that came out of there and broke a lot of records at the University of South Carolina. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so, um, you know, to, to kind of wrap up a little bit, I, I generally don't like to talk about politics or, or so. However, if I have a man like Anton Gunn on the show, I, I want to hear his take on what's going on in Afghanistan a little bit. You have more than an inside scoop than the average Joe. So maybe you can share with us a little bit of your take. 
Yeah, so I'm happy to do that. So, um, you know, I, I'm I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about healthcare and passionate about helping organizations to win. But I'm also passionate about our world and, and uh, having peace in the world. The reason why I'm passionate about that is that you can't read this in my bio, but I'll share it with you. My younger brother, Sharon, uh, was killed by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers in a terrorist attack aboard the USS Cole in October of 2000. Now, this is before 9-11, before um, they knocked down um, the Twin Towers. And so most people didn't know who Osama bin Laden was before 9-11. However, he was a household name to my family because he took my brother's life and 16 of his shipmates. And since that time, I've been focused on foreign affairs. I've traveled internationally. Um, I've been around the world. I've been to Israel and talked to leaders there around how they're working in cooperation with the United States to keep people safe. And here's one thing I know about Afghanistan is that after 9-11, we started off in the right direction going to try to get Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. And we quickly got distracted from that and focused on Iraq. And when we focused on Iraq, we took our eye off the ball where the problem was. And a lot of people say, you know, we've been too long into Afghanistan. And I agree. It shouldn't have been there 20 years because you can't change a place and change people who don't want to be changed. We kind of just talked about that. You got to want to be different. And what was clear to me and what has been clear to most of the world is that, you know, we were trying to nation build or change a country where the people there were not invested in the same change that we want. And when you have people who have two different visions around what they want to have happen, you're going to have 20 years of a struggling and many times failed war because we took our eyes off the ball and focused on the wrong thing, which was investing all of our time and attention to taking out Saddam Hussein, who was not the problem at the time. And and he was not at all connected to Osama bin Laden or anything related to Al-Qaeda. And they didn't agree on anything. They were very different people. And so we're in a bad spot. I do think it's good that we're coming out because there's a lot of money that we spent. There's a lot of good things we could have done back home. But we got to be prepared to know that this may be more problems down the road. Uh, We already seen what ISIS-K can do, and they created another 13 Gold Star families to join my family, unfortunately, uh, when we lost those Marines and those Navy and Army personnel. So we got to be vigilant. And we got to protect ourselves. Most importantly, we got to be strong as Americans, because one of the big things that I'll tell people is that um, terrorism is able to thrive when we're not strong and committed to each other. So this is a big point for all of us is that we got to find a way to get on the same page because the, the enemy from within will do us much more damage than the enemy from without. But that enemy from without can do a whole heck of a lot of damage when we're not on the same page. So. That's my take on Afghanistan. And, you know, that's how I see it. And that's the way it ought to be. Do you feel in your personal opinion that if we would have given everyone their own personal Xbox and maybe an air conditioning unit, do you feel we could have avoided a lot of this mess? You know, you know, you're making a good joke. But let, let me tell you like this. I think the number one way to end terrorism in this world is through helping people with what they need. That's the bottom line. Not for us to decide what they need, but to help people what they need. I mean, we were talking about managers earlier. The biggest failure of any manager is that you don't care about the people that you lead because you don't even know what they need. You haven't asked them what they need or what their goals are in life and what they want. But if you help people get what they need, then they become loyal to you. 
I mean, you know, the good book says the greatest amongst you should be your servant. A servant is a person who helps to meet your needs. And so maybe some people want an Xbox, maybe some people want an air condition, but maybe some people just wanted roads and they want water. They want sewer. They want the ability to be able to bring their crops to market and, and to make a little money to take care of themselves and their family. So if we did those kind of things more than anything else, then I think that would slow the pace of terrorism growing is to give people what they want and what they need. You hear that, Mitch McConnell? Definitely. He needs to be listening. But um, anyways, um, for those who want to reach out to you and connect and maybe hire you, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Yes, that's great. So the first thing, you can go to AntonGun.com. That's where you'll find my blog, all my writings, information that will help you to grow and resources that I have for you. But if you want to connect with me over business, connect with me on the following platforms. LinkedIn is my primary platform where I spend most of my time. Instagram second. Third is Twitter and then Facebook. And that's Anton J. Gunn on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can connect with me at Anton J. Gunn, and I'll be happy to work with you and help you to build a kind of culture where everybody thrives because you got diverse, high-performing teams, and you can become a leader that everyone will admire. Right. I'll be leaving links down below. Uh, that is actually how we uh, connected originally. I, you know, you liked one of my posts, and you know, I I saw who you were. And I'm like, holy hell! I need to I need to speak to this man immediately. Well, I'm happy to connect with you because you were posting great stuff. And uh, I always like to support people who are doing good things and particularly people who are adding to the mindset of a great business leader and people who are entrepreneurs and running organizations. And you've definitely been doing that. I appreciate it. Uh, means a lot, actually, uh, more than you know. Um, so, again, uh, can't say, I can't say how much I appreciate you coming on, uh, but I really do appreciate it. And um, anything I can do, just let me know. And uh, yeah, and again, connect with Anton um, about anything you want. Um, so again, yeah, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely.